China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Victor Xu, the Ho Mu Lam Chair in China and Pacific Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy, located at UC San Diego. Today we'll be discussing his fantastic new book, Coalitions of the Week, Elite Politics in China, From Mao's Strategium to the Rise of Xi, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Victor, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Jude, for uh, having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I wanted to ask uh, if you could first start with just giving us a, a brief introduction to your research interest and background. How did you come to be studying Chinese elite politics full time? Kind of a long story. Uh, in fact, in high school, I was going to do European history, uh, but then uh, a friend of my mom gave me a book, a Jonathan Spence book on in search of modern China, which was really fascinating. Then I went to GW George Washington University for my undergrad, and it just so happened at that time there were a number of uh, really good uh, China studies people who were there. Harry Harding just joined. Marty White, a very you know well-renowned sociologist of China, also was there, and of course you know Bruce Dixon at McCourt uh, had been there for a couple of years. So um, I decided to do China studies,、uh, and then you know the first summer after my freshman year, and by the way, I took a PhD level Chinese history course my freshman year, which was not. Advisable, but I came out all right.、Uh, I, I read a、uh, Rod McFarquhar's book、uh, on the origin of the Cultural Revolution. It was extremely hard for me to get through, but it was, you know, in the end, I found it very rewarding. And so I started China studies, and you know, the rest is sort of history. Before we dig into the the very specific elements of of the book, focusing on. As you say in the the subtitle, looking at Mao and extending all the way through Xi Jinping. I wanted to start by asking just some. Generalized questions about dictatorships and the dynamics which operate, and I understand that we have not every dictatorship is the same, but there are some elements of the incentive structures that exist both for the dictator and for other actors in the system, which we can think about in a generalized generalized way. So, first question I wanted to ask is: It would seem to me, or at least on the surface, it's plausible that for a dictator, the path to remaining in power is by essentially. Implementing effective governance and state capacity, building and and running a state which is able to drive solutions. And so, if that was the case, I would need to have competent and capable deputies to help me run it. I think your answer will be not necessarily. But I wanted to ask you: Is that the right way to think about how a dictator might remain in power? And and if not, what's a better story? Yeah, no, I, I think the intuition is not wrong, right? So you know, when there are major challenges facing the regime, like you know, if the, if there's still this sort of anti-regime forces that are at work within the country, if there are major economic challenges or even foreign policy challenges, you know, the potential for war with another major power, for example. You do want to appoint very competent lieutenants to take over a large part of the bureaucracy and to prepare for you know to deal with whatever challenge there is for the regime. But you know, I guess the book highlights that there is a trade-off. You know, so the trade-off is that you, your lieutenant who takes over this very important part of the government is going to accumulate power、uh, over time. 
And even if they have had a track record of being very loyal to you in the past, as was the case with Lin Biao, he or she can build up a lot of power over time such that they can challenge your power eventually, right? So, in you know, the problem with authoritarian politics is that there are no rules, basically, right? Uh, because there's no credible constitutions. There's, you know, there are some term limits on paper, but as we can see, they, you know, they don't really mean very much. So if they acquire enough power, who's to say that they won't challenge a dictator's power? So for the dictator, unless there is a very severe challenge externally, there will be a tendency to appoint people who are not so strong, who are politically maybe weak, to be in charge of various bureaucracies. Just as an aside, I remember uh, I had a chance to talk about China with a governor, former governor of a Midwestern state. And I was explaining, again, when I talk about Chinese politics, all I do is basically regurgitate what I read from people like Victor Schur and pass it off as my own. But I remember talking about some of these dynamics about crown prince dilemma. And I remember, interestingly, the governor said, you know what? I can totally understand that. When I was governor, I wanted a lieutenant governor who was not going to outshine me. And I was always aware of having someone who is competent enough, but not overly competent in a position that was going to essentially challenge my agenda. So what I took away from that, there's some universal laws of power and wielding power that uh, transcend specific regime types. And I, I think you just hit on one. Yeah, I mean, in democracies, there's usually some kind of limit, uh, which is that elections, right? So, you know, if you appoint a bunch of people who are totally incompetent, then you're not going to do so well in elections. But some people don't care about that, you know, like our former president. So that's a different topic. Two other things I picked up from your book, but want to just ask in a generalized way about dictatorships. The first is, you just mentioned this, but I wanted to explore this a little bit more. How would I, as a dictator, know who is loyal to me and who is not? A lot of the sorting mechanisms that you would have in other political systems and regime types, like elections, where people will come out you know, either supporting your candidacy or against it, or with oppositional parties, or with public votes on given legislative agendas and items, which allows you know, executives to have a better understanding of, of kind of who's in the coalition and who's not. In this ruleless world of dictatorial politics, at a functional level, how does a, how does a dictator make judgments or assessments, or maybe they can't, about, about who, is, who is credibly loyal to you? Yeah, yeah. So that, this is a complicated issue in authoritarian regimes. In democracies, you know, you just talk to the press and say, you know, I'm loyal to, you know, president, you know, this and that. And that's credible because if you switch in the media, you say, oh, today I'm loyal to Biden, tomorrow I'm not. There's a cost to it. You know, people are like, well, what, you know, you're, you're flip flopping or, or whatever. In authoritarian regimes, this kind of public declaration is not very costly, right? Because the media is completely controlled by the government. You know kind of what you have to say anyway, and everyone sort of says it, you know, I'm loyal to the current leader of the government. Um, so typically, you can't really get a lot of good information uh, about loyalty from this kind of declared statement. There are some circumstances where the, you know, this declared loyalty is kind of credible, and I wrote an article about that, but typically we don't think of it as very credible. So then the dictator has to make the lieutenant do very costly things, right? You know, it's like, oh, my son needs $100 million, come up with it, you know? So that's a kind of a typical dictator ask. 
or you know I need to purge my enemy from government. You take care of it. You know, and sometimes it even involves like murders and and stuff like that,、uh, as we've seen in the case of Russia. So these deeds have to be credible.、Uh, but even that runs in the problem, right? Because if your lieutenant, you know, who's done you know these very costly things for you all along, but then has accumulated a lot of power along the way, can you really trust that person? Right, if the person has accumulated a lot of power, and I would argue that the answer is no, you know, because at the end of the day, how do you know if a powerful person is really going to remain loyal to you if he or she has the capacity to usurp your power? So the safest thing, so in authoritarian politics, I guess the big big argument in the book is that there is no such thing as loyalty. There is only the ability to usurp the dictator and the inability to usurp the dictator, and at the end of the day. The inability to usurp the dictator is the best way to guarantee that the dictator can stay in power, which is the the aforementioned coalitions of the of the weak that we'll get into in a minute. And I, I guess this is just following on as well. How does a dictator measure relative distributions of power within the system? In other words, how do I know that I'm firmly enough in control or in power? From a would-be usurper to be in a sufficiently advanced lead. Yeah. So again, it's very tricky. In democracies, you can do opinion polls and and stuff like that、uh, to measure power. In authoritarian dictatorships, I think there are two main ways that people, both within the regime and also us social scientists looking from the outside,、uh, tend to think of it. One is holding positions of power over. Powerful formal institutions, you know, like、uh, so. We typically assume the head of secret police, the head of the military, will have some degree of power because they control bureaucracies with such,、um, you know, lethal capacities or you know a, a lot of economic capacities. But we have seen a lot of cases where you know these really weak figures take over these、uh, big bureaucracies and they actually don't get to exercise a lot of power through these formal institutions. So the other way we think about it. Is the size and composition of their informal networks, and so someone who's been in the party, you know, in the ruling regime for years and years and years, taking many different positions, will be able to cultivate a large network of potential、uh, loyal followers that you know will rely on this person to reward them with promotions in the future. But then you know this person can mobilize this large network in the event of a political struggle. So you know, someone like that would be quite powerful, and it's not someone that you really want to appoint in a senior and powerful position if you don't want to worry about being challenged all the time.、Uh, in contrast,、uh, someone who's yesterday was an ordinary worker, and then suddenly you make this person、uh, the vice premier of China or some other country. Person will have no network whatsoever at the elite level, and in a sense, that's a very safe individual to appoint. Although you know this person's competence、uh, will be in question, of course. Maybe that's a good transition to now taking some of these generalized points about dictatorship, which I think actually really strongly headlight what your main thesis is when applied to China's political system. Maybe the best way to ask you what the overall thesis of the book is is actually just to ask you about the cover. And for folks who haven't yet bought it, I will be checking up in a week to make sure that you have. Those of you who have demonstrated loyalty by purchasing、uh, General Secretary Shu's textbook will know that on the cover of it is not what I would have thought、uh, for a book about power in China's political system. I would have expected a picture of Mao. I would have expected a picture of Xi Jinping, or just a sole picture of. 
dung at the center. But actually, there's a really interesting photograph of uh, Ye Jianying and Li Xianyan along with Deng Xiaoping. And so maybe as a way of asking you how some of what we've talked about is applied to China's political system. Why, why was that cover photo the best way you thought of illustrating your, your argument? Yeah, so the, there was an even better picture, but we couldn't find the copyright. So this is from Gettys, but, but this is uh, pretty close to what I wanted. So these are, in fact, I think this was a Chairman Mao's funeral committee, at least some members of Chairman Mao's funeral committee. So these were the most powerful individuals right after Mao had died. On the right, uh, you had Li Xianyan, who literally says Li Xianyan is a counter-revolutionary splittist in his file, in his official Chinese Communist Party file. Yet, this was a guy who was in power throughout the entire Cultural Revolution, which, of course, aimed at removing counter-revolutionaries from the party. Uh, so that's puzzling. Ye Jianying never commanded troops after the sort of mid uh, 1920s. Uh, and so within the, the military, he was extremely weak. He didn't have his own faction, but yet he was nominally in charge of the military for much of the last years of Chairman Mao and, and even into the post-Mao period. You know, that's the amazing thing about Ye Jianying. And then you have Wu De on the extreme left and uh, Wu De on the extreme left and Hua Guofeng in the center, who were uh, very junior provincial officials you know, prior to the Cultural Revolution, who suddenly find themselves to be, you know, the number one and sort of number seven officials in the regime. And then finally, Deng Xiaoping. So Deng Xiaoping, of course, very uh, experienced revolutionary. His uh, kind of historical faction was wiped out in the late 1920s by the KMT. So he also doesn't have his own faction within the military. He adopted a faction full of counter-revolutionaries and so it's also a puzzle why he you know, got a seat uh, at the table, so to speak. So, so again, I, I agree with you. I mean, these were not the people you would have expected to run China, yet here they were running China at least for a couple of years before the coalitions uh, changed yet again. So I think a surface level understanding of China's modern political history focusing on the Mao period would argue that Mao was able to wield such effective power because he had this extraordinary revolutionary charisma credentials and that it was really his spiritual mobilizational efforts that were able to arouse the masses. Uh, of course, it's much more complicated than that, but something I just failed to appreciate until reading the book was the Coalitions of the Week strategium and how Mao came to find that as being the most effective or at least the best possible for way for him to remain in power after some pretty significant setbacks. Can you talk about how Mao Zedong turned to this coalitions of the weak strategy? What were the historical context within which he made that? And walk us through some of the operational uh, sort of granulars about what that looked like. Yeah, sure. So, so I think uh, Mao, I mean, so maybe unlike Stalin, <laughs> I do believe that Mao did want to rule in a coalition uh, for a while. So through the 1950s, much of the 1950s, you had this kind of, and the literature, you know, uh, talks about this, the so-called Yan'an Round Table, where, you know, you had these other revolutionaries who were very experienced, had their own pretty sizable networks, because, of course, the Chinese communists fought the struggle against Japan and the KMT in relative isolation with one another in the 1920s and 1930s. 
And so they, you know, so you had a number of individuals, you know, who had Peng Dehuai and uh, Liu Shaoqi and so on and so forth, had their own factions. Uh, but that was okay for Mao because Mao was still uh, had the most charismatic power. They all deferred to him. Uh, and just through balancing uh, different factions against one another, he was able to uh, firmly stay in power prior to the Great Leap Forward. And then he pushed for very radical economic policies, which led to the deaths of 30 to 50 million Chinese people. And he made a huge error. Uh, and so at this meeting called the 7,000 Cadre Conference, his greatly policies were repudiated. But more alarming, uh, some of his former allies, especially Liu Shaoqi, began a move to sideline him. And basically, I mean, you know, sort of with his uh, so-called as you know, uh, agreement. But I think he knew that he was under a lot of pressure to step back from economic policy making and allow people like Liu Shaoqi, Deng Xiaoping and, and Chen Yun to take over policy making. So this big policy setback, in a way, kind of forced him into one of two paths. One is that he could have accepted being marginalized over time, to be sure. But of course, you know, Mao being Mao, that's not the outcome that he wanted. Uh, so what he did was to begin planning for a wholesale purge of his powerful colleagues, the colleagues with the dense networks of followers in uh, different ministries and provinces around China. They all, most of them had to go. And then at first he wanted to promote one of his loyal followers. So, so then he switched to a kind of a factional. So he went from power balancing to factional strategy, you know, where Lin Biao became his right-hand man and, and would be the successor of China. But ultimately, what happened was Lin Biao himself accumulated too much power, especially in the military, so that he could not trust Lin Biao. And then finally, and fortunately, he was prepared for you know this Lin Biao problem. He cultivated a bunch of weak officials just in case. And it turned out that he needed these weak officials. So then the full coalition of the weak strategy came into play. And the coalition of the weak strategy is you promote either historically very tainted officials, in this case, the Fourth Front Army veterans who were all labeled as counter-revolutionaries back in the 1930s because they literally split with the Central Committee. You know, during in the middle of the Long March, you know, Mao wanted to go north. These people wanted to go south. And so they split the Communist Party in half, which is really the worst thing you can do in any kind of communist movement is to split it. So they all were labeled as counter-revolutionaries. Uh, Mao promoted these people within the military to balance against Lin Biao. And then on the civilian side, uh, these radicals who helped Mao launch the Cultural Revolution were, were also being promoted, although some were also being sacrificed because there were many of them and it didn't really matter if you sacrificed a, a few of them. So the Coalition of the Week was in, play, uh, in place when Lin Biao began to show a streak of resistance against Mao in 1970. And so Mao was in, in a place to purge Lin Biao. So right before Lin Biao fled and his plane crashed, Mao was getting ready to purge him. So because he had the confidence of the Coalition of the Week. Skipping over a full decade of uh, Chinese politics to get to the to get to the Deng era, I wanted to ask about a coalitions a coalitions of the week in the 1980s, or I guess starting in the late 1970s and, and 1980s. It would seem, on the surface, you could argue that Deng, in fact, did not deploy a coalitions of the week strategy, and in fact, use 
the creation of a coalition of, of highly, highly competent, revolutionary credentialed individuals through rehabilitating them in the late 1970s and early 80s, bringing them back into power, that in fact, he was deploying an opposite strategy of power sharing through, uh, again, rehabilitation of these deeply competent and credentialed cadres. Am I getting that wrong? Is there still a coalitions of the week strategy that you see as operative in, in the 1980s? Yeah, so in the 80s, I would say it was a plural, you know, coalitions of the week, whereas Mao cultivated one coalition of the week. So the exact um, mechanism also explains why Deng Xiaoping became the sort of first among equal leader in the 1980s. And, and that's something that actually I think the literature never adequately explained, because in the 1980s, if you just talk about revolutionary credentials, there were still a large number of people with similar credentials as Deng Xiaoping, people like Peng Zhen and Xi. So there was Peng Zhen, Bo Yibo, Chen Yun, and of course, uh, Deng Xiaoping. Uh, so why Deng Xiaoping? So the interesting back story of Deng Xiaoping is, again, his personal faction was destroyed by the KMT in the early 1930s. So he was kind of factionless for a while. He was very loyal to Mao. After the long march, after the big split of the Fourth Front Army, you know, Mao didn't want to expel all everyone in the Fourth Front Army from the party because they were fighting the Japanese and you really you know, didn't want to expel, you know, over half of the party. Uh, although many of them were killed off, you know, as, as I tell in the book from the party. So what he did was he, Zhang Guotao, who was the, the leader of this uh, renegade faction, defected to the KMT. So the faction was leaderless. So he appointed Deng Xiaoping to be in charge of much of this renegade faction. So the, the loyalty of the Fourth Front Army was split between people within the faction like Li Xianyan and Deng Xiaoping himself. So at the end of the, of the Mao period, there were no other viable factions in the PLA except for the Fourth Front Army. So Deng Xiaoping sort of was the obvious leader of the country uh, because he had the at least divided loyalty of such a big part of the PLA. The problem for Deng was that the PLA was dominated by these Fourth Front Army people. And the Fourth Front Army, even though they had a tainted status, could have challenged his power because there was just no one else around. So what he needed to do was to rehabilitate all these other factions that had been purged during the Cultural Revolution to balance against the Fourth Front Army. So he did that in earnest in the late 1970s. He had Hu Yaobang do it. Hu Yaobang, of course, went beyond Deng Xiaoping's mandate and absolutely rehabilitated just everybody in sight. But, you know, once you rehabilitate these people, as well as their followers, you have a bunch of other veterans with large networks in power. People like Peng Zhen, uh, you know, again, uh, Chen Yun was there already, but Bo Yibo, those two were purged, their factions were purged, but then they were wholesale rehabilitated by Hu Yaobang. Uh, and so Deng had to share power with these people because they were rehabilitated, that even their followers were rehabilitated. And Mao this, this, uh, started the rehabilitation, but Mao knew not to rehabilitate their followers, you know, just rehabilitate the, the heads of a couple of factions. So he had to share power. And so this is why there were multiple coalitions of the week. So, so then these old guys are rehabilitated. They enjoyed power, uh, but then they were getting old. They're like, oh, well, you know, who should we have to succeed us? They had a choice in the 1980s. They could either appoint princelings 
or very experienced, uh, just slightly younger officials, but they chose not to do that. So the coalitions of the week they put in place was these really a lot younger technocrats with very narrow work history within a single province or a single ministry that they suddenly found, you know, found themselves in the Politburo or in the Central Secretariat, uh, as was the case with Wang Jiabao and Hu Jintao and people like that. So they had very small networks. They listened to the veterans. They obeyed what the veterans told them to do. Uh, and that created a kind of a, I wouldn't say political vacuum, but you know, not an especially strong leader after the passing of the veterans in the mid-1990s. And you had this kind of stable power equilibrium until the arrival of Xi Jinping. Just as a, a follow-up question, why did Prince Ling's not consolidate more power in the 1990s with the death of some of these veterans. Also, of course, Deng Xiaoping's movement from old age to death, you know, after the after the Southern Tour and, and then dying in 1997. Of course, I, it was, you know, Chun Yun who said, we've got to make sure our kids are, sufficient number of our kids are in power to make sure that the, that the system survives and prevails. Why didn't Princings seize on that? And why weren't they able to consolidate power? Yeah, so the, I think Chen Yun certainly tried. Uh, and I mean, to be sure, the Princings did uh, very well in the first half of the 1980s. I mean, you know, these were people who were Red Guards in many cases during the Cultural Revolution and did not go to college in other cases. But they very quickly got their degrees or whatever accreditation they needed. And they very quickly were put into true, so county level and prefecture level positions. Um, so they did extremely well compared to ordinary people, certainly. But then at the kind of vice ministerial, vice provincial level, they began to run into resistance. The officials at the provincial level and the, in the ministries, they knew the princings were trouble because they're very uh, densely networked. They had their own cohort of uh, other princelings in the military. Uh, some of them began to go into commercial world. So they had money, they had military power. They certainly would meddle in the affairs of a province or in the ministries. So there was a real pushback against the princeling in the late 1980s. Of course, by the mid 1990s, uh, the veterans, you know, many of them had passed away or retired. So that opened the field more to the princelings. But by then they became too old. Because in the 30s, which is roughly the 1980s, it would have been a great opportunity for them to get to the vice ministerial level, which would have set many of them up very nicely for Politburo seats or even Politburo Standing Committee level positions. But by the 90s, when uh, the resistance against them weakened, they were in the 40s or even 50s in some cases. So, so in a sense, it was too late for them to joined the rat race to the top. A few princelings were smart. They left Beijing. They're like, well, you know, the competition within Beijing is just too intense. So let me go to Liaoning province or Hebei province to a county, keep a low profile, cultivate a network of followers in these kind of provincial places where, where they serve. And those people ended up doing quite well. And, and of course, they included Bo Xilai and also Xi Jinping. This might be a stupid question, but in the 1990s, did it also feel like market power was a, a, a preferable objective to political power? Or that it really that, that sort of markets over politics after, after 1992? Although I think, you know, uh, and the book doesn't really sort out the kind of causation uh, because, you know, it's just very difficult. Because what happened was 
a large number of princeling uh, had this kind of black mark during the Cultural Revolution. So, you know, they started as conservative Red Guards in Beijing, uh, which although a lot of time they spent defending the power holders at the time at the behest of Zhou Enlai, they also went around ransacking people's homes and beating up their teachers and so on and so forth. So that was considered very bad after the Cultural Revolution. And so that might have driven a number of them into the commercial world. So, you know, at this, at that time, of course, profit making was be- becoming okay. And you had these kind of state-owned investment companies like Citic, uh, you know, today, which still exists, uh, and Everbright Group and stuff like that. So a lot of princeling went into the business. But the people who went into business, they tended to be the Red Guards, you know, the former Red Guards who knew that they would, you know, run into resistance time and again if they had stayed in government. But if you read the biographies of these princelings, they wanted to stay in government. You know, if they had been given the opportunity, if the resistance against the rise wasn't so strong, they would have stayed in because for them, growing up in a so-called red family, being in government, rising up to be a senior official, especially at the Politburo level or above, really is the ultimate objective. And and many of them kind of regret the fact that they couldn't stay in government because of this resistance. Yeah, that's a great point. I was just thinking of, I mean, the trajectory of, of Chen Yuan, you know, in the 90s. Did he go, was he, did he go to CIDIC? No. Um, so Chen Yuan, uh, let me think. He was at PBOC. Yeah, PBOC, yeah, was, and then China Development Bank. That's right. That's right. Let's take it up to, to Xi Jinping. I have a two-part question, one on the origins and then one on how you assess a, a coalitions of the weak strategy as being uh, prevalent and operative, especially after the, the 19th Party Congress period and, and leading up to the 20th. But let me just ask a, a story we're still chewing over, which is how did Xi Jinping come to power? And there are something in your book that I really liked, which was just a line about I think highlighting the role of contingency in a lot of these political decisions that are not not necessarily really determinative and that Xi Jinping may not have come to power, but for a few other dynamics. And, and I, you wrote that really if there had been more or different princeling candidates who had their hat in the ring, he might not have come to the top of the, the leadership pile. So I wonder if I could just ask you to walk us through how you see Xi Jinping having come to power by late 2012. Yeah. So uh, I would split the explanation into two parts. One is uh, his own agency. So, you know, to inject some positive energy to the show, uh, as, as I always do, is that I, I do believe that Xi Jinping is a brilliant politician for the Chinese Communist Party. You know, he knew what it takes to rise up the ranks uh, and to seize power when the time is right. And he certainly timed um you know, so basically there was this amazing transformation of Xi Jinping right after he became secretary general. You know, he was this very low key, very humble figure all the way until the day that he became secretary general. And then he, of course, immediately began a, a big purge <laughs> of the party to the surprise of many of his supporters. So, you know, this kind of timing, the daring, the ability to keep a low profile until the time is right. I mean, these are all, you know, important ingredients to his rise in power. But the book basically argues that there also is this kind of structural condition for his rise, uh, which is the fact that there weren't so many princelings left in political competition 
against him um, at the 17th Party Congress and at the 18th Party Congress, where there could have been many more, right? So the, in terms of higher level princelings, you know, uh, people whose parents were at least vice ministers in, in the mid-1950s or PLA generals in the mid-1950s, there actually were thousands of people like that. I mean, these revolutionary veterans had a lot of babies. So there's this whole backstory about why they had a lot of babies. They had a lot of babies. So there were actually a lot of princelings through the Cultural Revolution, through the 1980s, uh, many of them joining businesses uh, and the resistance in the 1980s, the vast majority of them were eliminated from the political competition so that there were not so many competitors. There weren't even so many princelings to compete with uh, Zheng Qinghong. So I believe Zheng Qinghong was a pivotal figure who you know, decided that Xi Jinping would be the successor. But there weren't other voices to compete with Zheng Qinghong to say, no, no, it shouldn't be Xi Jinping, it should be someone else. There weren't so many people in his age group to compete directly against him. Really, the only two people were Bo Xilai and Li Yuanchao. And Li Yuanchao, his problem was that he threw his lot with the Youth League, and so he didn't get a lot of princeling support, even though he himself is a minor princeling. The other princelings, you know, Yu Zhengsheng being the most likely person he could never be the leader of China. You know, his brother defected to the U.S. And so there wasn't a lot of competition where there easily could have been another two or three or even four candidates who are princeling and at the same time competing against Xi Jinping. But the, the structural factor was such that, you know, the, this kind of competition did not exist. And so as long as Xi Jinping could get rid of the main competitors like Bo Xilai and Li Yuanchao, his path to the top was clear. So now let's bring it up to the present, or at least the five-year period, which is soon to be ending, marking the 19th Party Congress period. I wanted to walk through how you see a coalition of the week taking form, and I, but I first wanted to start with a straw man, which is, for some elements we see where it does seem to be the case that Xi Jinping has promoted officials like a, like a Tai Chi who was really uh, weak in terms of density of network relatively junior before he was rocketed up into into the Politburo and then party secretary of, of Beijing. There are individuals like, in, especially in the economic policy realm, like Guo Xuqing, Yi Gang, Liu He, who certainly are not considered to be weak and have their own extensive capabilities. And in the, and in the case of someone like Guo Xuqing is a longstanding veteran of economic policy who knows lots of people in lots of different ministries. So how do you, can you make the case for uh, a coalition of the week strategy as being present for Xi Jinping? And how do we explain folks like Guo Xuqing who aren't marginal figures, but are really essential of the economic policymaking machine? Yeah, so, so I would say uh, she has not yet pursued a coalition of the week strategy. Um, but, you know, of course, if you look at the average network size of people in Xi Jinping's faction, they are smaller than the average network size of people who had been in uh, Hu Jintao's faction. And, you know, my explanation is that Hu Jintao knew that he had to retire, so he wanted to promote the, the best kind of politicians, the most network politicians from the Youth League faction to be in government so that the po his post-retirement influence would continue. Whereas for Xi Jinping, there's a lot, uh, obviously less need to do that because, you know, there's no end for his tenure, so to speak. 
But nonetheless, you know, even people like Tai Chi, you know, served a long time in Zhejiang. So you you have this kind of Zhejiang, very powerful Zhejiang based network that is shared by a lot of people in Xi Jinping's faction. There's another tendency in his faction, you know, these people from North uh, Western China who have pretty dense networks with each other. So I would say I wouldn't say they're totally weak because. Uh, these are very seasoned provincial officials. They still have their own networks. And in fact, Liu He, I would say, in terms of political networks, he's among the weaker ones in Xi Jinping's faction because his career, he never served as a provincial leader. And his career was pretty monotonous, you know, in the state planning commission and then in the sort of in- information bureaucracy. So that's relatively narrow before he became uh, vice premier of China. But of course, Wang Huning is the maybe the first of many examples of coalition of the week. I mean, Wang Huning, in terms of network size, truly, truly is a very weak official. He had been a think tanker his entire career until he became a Politburo Standing Committee member. So he really is the you know most weakly networked official we've seen since the Mao period, you know, in the Mao period, you had people like Wang Hongwen and, and people like that uh, with weak networks. We don't know if there will be more people like Wang Huning at the time. I suspect immediately in the future, probably not. But as uh, Xi Jinping moved to sort of the latter half of his second decade, so at the 21st Party Congress and going into the 22nd Party Congress, the need for a coalition of the weak will increasingly be apparent because. You know, what happened to Mao is, you know, the initial group of people was not so problematic. But then, like, as you get further along, even some of Mao's own followers, like Lin Biao, like Huang Yongsheng, Li Zopeng, they began to accumulate power. So the people who are going to get promoted into the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee at the 20th Party Congress, I think they will begin to accumulate power in expectation of a potential you know, transition sometime in the future. And that's when the problems will begin. So let me pick pick up as a final question, but really important one, Victor, and one that many are discussing right now, which is, are we seeing shifts or deteriorations in Xi Jinping's relative power right now, given some clear hurdles or hiccups on the economic policy front? We've got this pretty significant slowdown in China right now. Contributing to this, of course, is some policy choices around COVID. But also we have, you know, a very weak global growth environment. The United States itself is 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 in pretty rough shape with inflation, about to see some major interest rate hikes and, and prospect of recession. So not all of this is on Xi Jinping in terms of where China's economy is. But nonetheless, you've had a series of pretty visible missteps on the foreign policy front, on the domestic economic front. You've got some real challenges around defrothing or de-risking the real estate sector, which is not going very well for Beijing. And so it's led to speculation that dynamics on the ground are empowering certain individuals. Of course, the, the one that's been put out a lot is, is Li Keqiang. I find this hard to believe or stomach, but nonetheless, it's, it's out there. So I wanted to ask how, right now, how are you assessing um, Xi Jinping's relative the relative amount of power Xi Jinping has. I've got a follow-up question, which is kind of looking to the post, post-20th Party Congress, but let me just get your assessment now. Uh, so, you know, when uh, leaders make decisions, uh, usually is out of kind of two, maybe three considerations. One is like their original worldviews, you know, it's like kind of their mental framework, their own, and number two is kind of their own cognitive ability. 
Uh, and then number three is the kind of information they are receiving. The problem in a dictatorship is that, yeah, so, you know, the, the first two kind of uh, variables can be good or bad for leaders in any kind of situations, right? You know, people can have the wrong mental framework in any kind of uh, regimes or, or political system. Uh, we've certainly seen a fair share of that <laughs> in the U.S. You know, uh, cognitive ability also, you know, some people are brilliant politicians, but they can't really think about economics very well. But finally, uh, is the information that they're getting. Here is like, where I think things could be getting worse as Xi Jinping becomes more powerful, as he reveals himself to want to be a dictator of all of China, because Xi Jinping has told all the officials in China that they must maintain a 100% agreement with the central government. But what if they find policy outcomes are at odds with existing policies or existing thinking? Do they dare to tell Xi Jinping that, actually, sorry, this is wrong, <laughs> you know, we have to change policies? What I read about what Li Keqiang has done in recent months is that it's not so much that he's opposing Xi Jinping's power, is that he, among very, very few officials in China now, are willing to show a different set of information to the top leader. It's like, well, actually, things may not be do doing so well. You know, our private businesses are suffering. We should do something about it. And, and this, by the way, is not a challenge to your power because we all agreed at the 19th Party Congress that we must nurture private businesses. So this is just following that line. What I fear for the 20th Party Congress and beyond is that there won't be anyone left willing to do that. Right. So you just have a bunch of toadies, so to speak, whose entire career uh, depend on Xi Jinping. I mean, you see this in Tai Chi's example, you know, like Xi Jinping said, oh, you know, I don't like so much traffic in Beijing. You know, these kind of markets, wholesale markets should leave Beijing. The bars, the signs are too bright and stuff. These are all things, of course, that are great for Beijing's economy, but Tai Chi didn't care about it, removed everything. So this is the kind of policy making that will be even more common potentially in the future than is the case today. But at least for now, you have people who are willing to bring different information to Xi Jinping, which makes it sort of okay, you do see some course correction, you know, it takes a while for it to happen, because basically, you know, even someone like Li Keqiang, they can't ex ante tell Xi Jinping that, oh, no, this is the wrong policy, they have to wait until some very bad data manifest, then they take the really bad data to Xi Jinping and say, I'm not saying you're wrong, but look at the data, you know, or something like that. Final question is thinking out beyond the 20th Party Congress to you had mentioned earlier the when we think out to the 21st party congress that's when you think xi jinping will really have to be putting into practice a coalition of the weak strategy with more prominence i wanted to ask how does a in 2027 at the 21st party congress period how does a coalition of the weak strategy affect governance performance the reason i'm asking this is in the period after the Great Leap Forward, China was relatively isolated from the global economy. What happened in China's political system certainly had implications for the outside world, but they weren't significant. The Cultural Revolution did not have global contagion effects. It was relatively isolated. Even in the 1980s, again, as a percentage of global GDP, China was very limited. Now, of course, China is a significant contributor to global growth. It's integrated into every nook and cranny of global governance and, and the global economy. 
what happens in China's domestic political system doesn't stay there. So what is your prospect for China's political stability out five years from now, assuming Xi Jinping has not choked on his soup or, or had a stroke? Can we see a, a coalition of the weak strategy coexist with, with stable governance? Well, I mean, I, I have to say uh, coalition of the weak strategy is done for stability. So, so if he fully institutes it, I think politically, domestic politically, it should be fine. Uh, and you saw this in late Mao period. As Mao got really, really sick, no problem. No one dared to challenge his power. So things were incredibly stable until he passed away. Then, you know, a few months later, there was military coup and, and so on and so forth. But the quality of policymaking is what I think we have to worry about. So, you know, in terms of economic policies, we are seeing uh, some of this dynamics manifest already. You know, this this problem of no one dares to bring negative data to Xi Jinping until it gets really, really bad, then finally someone like Li Keqiang probably, you know, is willing to bring some of this data to Xi Jinping and, and try to very gently correct the course of policymaking. This tendency will become worse the more there is a coalition of the weak in power. And also uh, policymaking will kind of de-institutionalize, right? So you, you kind of see this, like at the beginning of Xi Jinping's rule in his first five years, he attended a lot of meetings, you know, a lot of leading group, a lot of Politburo meetings. That is declining uh, over time, at least according to the publicly available data that we have. Gently, ever so gently declining. It's just very difficult to run a party. And so over time, you know, as your dictatorship gets established, what you would prefer is to not attend so many meetings, just issue oral instructions to a few uh, lieutenants that can be relied upon to convey your message accurately to others. And that's kind of how Mao came to rule in the last years of his life. So I think something like that is, is going to happen. But again, the problem is as you know, we all age, so our cognitive ability is going to decline for everyone, uh, even for Xi Jinping. That's going to happen to him. Increasingly, the close advisors can manipulate the information set that gets to him uh, so that, you know, and he can make increasingly arbitrary in the sense that, you know, for outsiders, it's just really hard to predict which way he's going to go because we don't know his cognitive ability. We don't know the information set that he receives. So these arbitrary decisions, especially economic decisions, will be made. And that could be create, you know, big surprises to investors. And again, we have seen some of this already. You know, the, the tech crackdown, who knows how that happened? You know, I, I really believe someone whispered, showed him some unnecessarily negative information about the tech sector, causing him to make these pretty drastic decisions. There will be a lot more of this going into the future. And then, of course, the ultimate worry is in the geopolitical kinds of decision making. You know, what kinds of information will be shown to him? But I think, you know, if he's a good politician the way that Mao is one, he wouldn't know, he should know that there is some kind of trade off, right? So if you have a lot of geopolitical ambitions, you will have to delegate to people who are very capable to prepare the military, run diplomacy for you they will become more powerful. And if you don't want that to happen, then you try to make alliances with superpowers so that you don't have to worry about foreign policy. This is kind of what Mao did, right? He made an alliance with the US and say, you know, foreign policy is just a huge can of worm. Uh, I don't want China to be so isolated as I get older and older. So uh, I want to improve the foreign policy situation for China so that Mao could fully pursue the coalition of the weak. 
Yeah, that's 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 really great. I mean, that that final point you made, Victor, is probably a follow-on podcast of understanding how power dynamics and internal regime decision-making and personnel dynamics have spillover effects for how leaders think about foreign policy strategies. I suspect, by the way, the movement towards some sort of coalition with Russia prior to the invasion was an attempt by Xi Jinping to to settle down some of the the strategic environment. Of course, he was probably not counting on a, a Russian invasion gone this wrong, and so he's added more volatilities, not not subtracted them. Victor, this has been really fascinating discussion, and I have to say to folks who have not read this excellent book, we have touched on about 0.03% of what is in the book. So this is not only, I think, a really essential manual for understanding political dynamics at work today, and as all great books injects a, a framework into your thinking rather than just a bunch of discrete anecdotes. This, this I think, for me, has given me a new framework for how to think about political dynamics moving forward. But I should also say, this is just a wonderful historical tract, which if you're trying to understand the dynamics at work and the development of Chinese politics over the last century, um, this is this is really fantastic. The key is to skip the first chapter after the first <laughs> six pages. So you read the first six pages and then you skip chapter, the rest of chapter one, then you start reading in chapter two. Then it, it becomes a very readable historical. I, I, having read it cover to cover, I will say it is very readable all the way through. But uh, yes, for those of you who want to skip over any any methodological discussions, Victor's Victor's uh, uh, recommendation uh, might want to be heeded. Nonetheless, um, the book is Coalition of the Week, Elite Politics in China from Mao Strategium to the Rise of Xi. The author is Victor Scher. Victor, thank you so much for your time, your insights. I know you've been working on this book for, for a long time in between publishing uh, paper after paper, teaching classes, but it has definitely been worth the wait. Uh, so thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 